Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and reference right in your little ears. I'm your host, Susan McGuire, here to guide you on our journey through all things bookish and library land. It's getting colder here in Chicago, and it's the perfect weather to sit down with a knitting project and an audiobook, or, in my case, a cross-stitch project and some garbage television. And what better way to assuage my garbage TV thirst than with a juicy celebrity memoir? And what better place to find a new pattern to try than in my library's craft book collection? Craft books are some of the most highly circulated books in a public library collection, but how do you know if you've got the right stuff for your patrons? And how do you find out who's writing a memoir, who's narrating it, and what's worth listening to? Fear not. First, on this episode of Shelf Care, the podcast, I spoke to Nanette Donahue, Collections and Technical Services Manager at the Champaign Public Library in Illinois, about what makes a craft book a good fit for a library collection and all kinds of other good stuff related to these popular books. Then, on the audiobook front, audio editor Heather Booth spoke to Emily Borsa, Collection Services Manager at the Hinsdale Public Library, also in Illinois, about the enduring appeal of the celebrity memoir. Finally, I sat down with Booklist editor of Books for Youth and Graphic Novels, Sarah Hunter, to talk about what she's been reading and loving lately. Let's get to it. But first, a word from some friends. Say, do you like reading? Do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing? Then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a booklister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Wadi Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq, or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees. Hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series, and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast. Happy listening! Hi, everyone. I'm with Nanette Donahue, and we are here to talk about craft books. Nanette, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. And I am excited to talk about craft books because I like they are some of the things that I check out the most from my library because I'm too cheap to buy them. And I just love them. So tell us a little bit about your experience with craft books in the library. Well, I am a crafter who will try anything at least once, yes. um, sometimes two or three times, depending on how successful I am the first yeah. time. But I have been reviewing craft books for probably about 15 years now. And when I took over weeding for our nonfiction collection, the craft books were one of the first areas that I had gravitated towards. Yeah. Just to try to shape the collection a little better. Um, then in late 2020, I took over as the collections manager. So now I get to do selection, which is pretty great. Yes. And so my experience has been a lot of reviewing current awareness and trying to shape a collection that my community will love. Awesome. So what do you look for in a craft book when you're considering adding it to the collection? One of the things that I think is critically important in craft books is good illustrations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily matter if they're photographs or if they're line drawings. I've seen both used very successfully in craft books. But most people who are looking for craft instruction, especially, are, look are going to need a visual component, whether it's 
a visual component of how to cast on for knitting project or a visual component about how the folds work in an origami project. Mm -hmm. That visual component is really critical. And if the illustrations aren't great, then the book is going to suffer as a result. That said, there are some really classic craft books out there that don't have a ton of illustrations. Um, Things like Elizabeth Zimmerman's Knitting Books, which are classic. Hmm. They were published, I believe, over 50 years ago, are still widely used by knitters of, of all skill levels. And the illustrations are very minimal mm-hmm. so that, you know, it can be done successfully, but Elizabeth Zimmerman is a rare case. Most of what we're looking at in contemporary craft books, especially since YouTube tutorials are so huge in the crafting world, most of what you want is something that people can use to learn visually. Right. Do you find that the circulation has gone down since YouTube has gone up or... I do, but that's the case throughout our nonfiction collection, especially during and and after the pandemic-related closures. I think people discovered some different ways to access informational content that don't involve the library, and I don't think it's unique to craft books. I think we're also seeing decreases in things like cookbooks, which used to be a really solidly high-circulating collection, Yeah, like DIY and home repair. Things like that have just kind of decreased a lot. There's also less being published these days, it seems. You know, 15 years ago, when I was coordinating the crafts reviews for a library journal, I would get these boxes of, you know, 30 books a month. And now it's, there's not that, like, there's not as much out there. Some of the crafts publishers that were really prominent have disappeared. And there's also other, there's different ways that crafters are getting their information. We're seeing a lot more knitters and crocheters buying patterns on Ravelry. Oh, yeah. And I think that for a lot of knitting designers, it's easier to just sell your patterns individually on Ravelry or through your own website than to put together a whole a whole book. Whole book. You're going to right. probably make more money off of it doing it yourself as well. Yeah. Interesting. So we know what makes a good craft book. What are there any like red flags of things to avoid? Like do you avoid certain bindings or do you just kind of put up with it? and catalog it appropriately, or if it has a lot of pieces? or We'll buy it if it looks like a good book. It, managing the processing of things with, you know, pattern pieces can get kind of complex because, you you know, we tend to label everything and try to put notes in the record so everything stays together. Because if you have, for example, a sewing book that's got patterns, if the patterns disappear, oftentimes the book becomes kind of useless. Yeah. I am seeing some publishers releasing sewing books with PDF patterns that you can go to a website and download and print, oh. which it, it aligns with how some fo- some designers are selling their sewing patterns, but it's not necessarily the experience that some crafters are going to want. I have bought quite a few spiral bound books. One of my favorite knitting books and the reference that I go to the most often is the is this book called Cast on Bind Off. That mm-hmm. is just it's this little small spiral bound compendium of knitting cast ons and bind offs. And if I come across something unfamiliar in a pattern that I'm trying to make, that tends to be my first place to go for instruction on that. So I've yeah you know, I've bought spiral bound. I've bought some things that have the laid flat binding, which a lot of crafters are going to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Hardcover paperback, you name it. If it is a if it is a good book, we we find a way to work with it. Yeah. That, I know that's a challenge. In libraries I've worked in, we would drive technical services crazy by ordering because technical services wasn't, ordering wasn't part of technical services. So we would blithely order these books with funny bindings and with a million pieces and then just be like, sorry, <laughs> which is not great. But 
Yeah, we worked with plenty of weird stuff over the years, you know, language kits with three different books and 16 CDs that we've got to try to find casings for. Uh, so we can we can make it work. Cool. I love that attitude. So when you're selecting, how do you weigh kind of like the hot, trendy new craft with more classic crafts? Like, are you always going to buy the knitting book or are you going to reach out into, I don't know, like cricket or some other is that how you say it yeah cricket cricket Cricket. or some other new craft that I don't even know about because I'm not like in the world of crafting right now but I buy a little bit of everything yeah you know our collection has the greatest steps in in knitting and crochet and quilting and sewing which I think is probably typical for a lot of libraries collections but we do buy in other other styles as well. We have a very active spinners and weavers guild in town. So when I Mm. see new spinning and weaving books, I tend to pick those up. We've got a lot of people who are interested in just trying things that are new. Punch Needle is coming back. Oh, Punch Needle was really popular in the early 80s. My mom did a lot of it. Um, They had like a sweatshirt that my mom had put a Punch Needle Smurf on. Nice. Um, I think I had a Punch Needle Garfield. I have a Punch Needle Cookie Monster that my grandmother made. Yeah, it's it's super modern now, which is which is kind of cool. But I've bought some some punch needle books. I buy origami, jewelry making, because people here in Champagne just they want a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. um, and it all circulates. So as long as it circulates, I'm gonna go for it. Right, and you probably have room to try something new. I do. Do you have a say on how how things are shelved or how they're displayed, or do you have a pretty good? crafting community who knows to come and check or how do you get those like hot new books in people's hands? Well, we have a really nicely placed new book collection. And I think a lot of folks gravitate towards that collection when they're looking for what's new and exciting. We have a really great program called Crafty Adults that's a monthly program. And we use that to cross promote the crafts collections. And they've gotten into some really interesting things. They've done stuff like soap making. Mm -hmm. They do like a cookies and canvases painting program. They they bring in all these really interesting presenters from from around our area and and just have an evening of crafting and those things always they always book fully with a wait list, um, so we have a really engaged crafting community here um, and they know where to look and our our reference librarians and our information services librarians are really fantastic when it comes to directing people to the things that they want. Also, we are super open to suggestions. If somebody sends in a suggestion and it's available, chances are I will buy it. We, you know, I, I get craft book suggestions every so often, and I, I generally buy them if they're available. Yeah. So let's talk about the opposite of collecting, which is weeding, which I love. You know, you got to weed the craft books, and sometimes they weed themselves mm-hmm. if they become too well-loved. But how do you know when it's time to let a craft book go? And I think about, like, I mean, I've seen collections that are not weeded, that have like macrame books from the seventies. And it's like, well, macrame books <laughs> are still popular uh-huh. and if the instructions are still good. So how do you decide what to keep and what to recycle? Low circ actually plays a really huge role in what we do here. Um, because if people are not checking it out, then we know that it, it's time has probably passed. Crafting books are interesting because you don't necessarily want to look at age. There are a lot of books, crafting books that are really evergreen. You know, Elizabeth Zimmerman's books are among those. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara Walker's Stitch Dictionaries, which are just phenomenal, and I think they're at print now. About 10 years ago, when I was really, really getting into knitting, 
there was this craze for Alice Starmore's books. In the 80s, she published these books that were on Aaron knitting and Fair Isle knitting. And the, you know, the visuals were all super dated. It was these, you know, women with big windswept hair on the beach wearing 80s looking yes. makeup. But the designs were evergreen. And she, you know, she's an expert in in those techniques of knitting. And so people really, those were really sought after books and were selling for hundreds of dollars on the the used book market. Um, and we had them. And I was like, yay, we must preserve. And they were still circulating, which was unsurprising because because she was so popular and, and so evergreen. But a lot of times you do have to look at the design. Are these things dated? You know, a book on knitting for teens that's from 2008, that, that kind of needs to go. But a book that's on feral knitting techniques, just like a really general topic, could last quite a while because that's that's not really going to change. So we do we do look a lot at low circ. I also like to look at high circ just to get inspired for areas that we might want to refresh because sometimes people check out books over and over and over again, or a book gets checked out because it's the only thing on a particular topic, but there's something newer out there. Like you mentioned, yeah, the stuff gets worn out. It's not as bad as the cookbook collection where somebody spills something right. on it, yes. but they do get worn. You know, you toss a book in your crafting bag and take it around with you, and it's eventually going to get pretty beat up. I am a huge weeding fanatic, and the craft books can get really crowded just because there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So they do require some pretty regular maintenance. It's something that I've had practicum students work on mm-hmm. in the past. If they have an interest in an aptitude in crafting, it's a good area for them to not only lead, but to handle collection development in. Because then they can take a look at what actually is going out and where we might need to grow the collection. Nice. That's great. Because if they have an interest in it, that makes them, I don't know, it gives them a little leg up when they're doing collecting and weeding. Yeah. So let's say there's someone who walks into a new library, a new public library, and there's no craft books in it. How, how, where do you suggest they start a new collection? I think you always want to start with those beginner how-to books and make sure that you have a good selection of books for people who are interested in learning something new. Because that does tend to be, you know, it does tend to be a rational place for people to start is the public library. Mm -hmm. So make sure that you have a good selection of beginner books that explain how to do things in a variety of different crafts. You definitely want to make sure you have knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, maybe some jewelry making. Mm-hmm. If you can expand out beyond that, if you have the budget and if you have the means and the space, absolutely do that. Pick up books on needlepoint and weaving and spinning and macrame. Also, reach out to local groups. If you have, you know, we have the Spinners and Weavers Guild in Champaign. They are very helpful if we have questions about things that they might be interested in seeing in our collection. If your community has a quilt guild or a knitter's guild or any other crafty type group, or if you have a local yarn shop or a sewing shop, Reach out to the folks who work there. Um, reach out to the folks who participate in those events and just ask them how the library can support what they're doing in the communities. Once you've got those beginner books, my other suggestion is to get some references on different crafts. There are a lot of really great knitting and crochet references. I've seen some really nice quilting and sewing books. With sewing, you can start branching out into things like pattern making. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, the sky is the limit. Yeah, <laughs> You're yeah. really only limited by by your space and, and your budget. Do you think library collections tend to be kind of fiber art heavy or um, is it just because we're all secretly knitters? I do think that cl- the crafts collections can be pretty fiber art heavy. A lot of that, though, is because the bulk of what I see published is is knitting and crochet. Right. It's really great when you see something that's unique, like the punch needle books I was talking about, that you can 
kind of dive into and purchase. I'm not seeing as many sewing books as I used to, which is really unfortunate because garment sewing has been has been really popular and is is one of those things that people are always learning and always getting more and more interested in. And the quilting stuff has been interesting because a lot of the quilting content is coming from overseas, oh. especially the UK and Australia. So fortunately, those things are becoming available in the US, but it's been interesting to see how a lot of the the publishing related to quilting and and, and things like that are coming from elsewhere. Right. And then do they have, if it's published in the UK or Australia, do they have different, uh, is everything in centimeters and different, is, aren't there different stitches? Yeah, they, they sometimes have different names for things, but I think that once you're, once you get a little bit savvy about it, usually they're, they're pretty easily translatable. Cool. All right. Well, I think listeners are, is there anything else you want to add about craft collecting and craft collections in general? Just that they're a great way to bring people into the library. Yeah. Because there are so many people who are out there who are crafters who are interested in learning something new. And it really can open up it can open up the library to a whole new audience. Yeah. I think that's so true. Not just I don't just say that because I am a craft book user. It's also true of other people. <laughs> so that's amazing. And that is so helpful. And I, you know, I really appreciate you bringing your expertise here. But I also want to ask you, you do readers advisory and stuff. And I'm wondering what you're reading and loving right now. Well, I just finished the book Disillusioned by Benjamin Harold, which does not come out until January of next year. But it is a really phenomenal piece of nonfiction reporting about America's suburbs. Hmm. And how they have transformed over the years, you know, looking at, at everything from like inner ring suburbs and how they have aged to, you know, how suburbs have expanded out beyond, you know, things that areas that used to be like country yeah. are now suburbs. And, you know, you live in Chicago and I'm from I'm originally from the Chicago suburbs. And it amazes me that the Chicago suburbs stretch out as far as they do. But what he does in this book is he follows five different families through their experiences in the suburbs. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's beautifully written. It made me think a lot about my own experience growing up in the suburbs mm -hmm. and how the place where I grew up has changed over the years. So it, it's a really fascinating book. I highly recommend. Um, I think it's it's probably going to find its way onto a lot of 2024 best of lists. Okay. Early prediction. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's really great. Yeah. The suburbs are changing a lot. I grew up in the New York suburbs and- things are different. So that would be a really interesting book to pick up. Cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for having me. And we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Wonderful. Want to share that great Booklist Reader's Advisory content with your patrons? Now it's easy with Booklist Reader, a selection of backlist booklists and best ofs designed with your patrons' reading needs in mind. Want to know the best book group books? Booklist Reader has a list. Looking for great middle grade graphic novels? There's a list for that. What about the best mysteries and thrillers on audio? You better believe Booklist Reader has a list for that, too. Best of all, the titles featured are already on your shelves, so no need for frustrating holds cues. Booklist Reader is included with your subscription to Booklist, so you can share this digital magazine on your library's website or newsletters. Find Booklist Reader on booklistonline.com reader hyphen issues and start sharing the great reader's advisory content with your patrons today. Hello, this is audiobook section editor Heather Booth, and I'm here with Emily Borsa. 
Emily works at the Hinsdale Public Library in Illinois, where she is the collection service manager. Emily is also a book list reviewer and a fan of pop culture and celebrity memoirs on audio. Emily, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, every time a big name celebrity memoir comes through on audio, you're the first person I think of to review it. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what it is that you like about listening to celebrities narrate their own works in particular and this kind of genre in general. Yeah. Well, it's like there's these people that we see every day and we know nothing really about them other than they're a pop star, they're a rock star, they're a supermodel, they're all these things. And we just want to know a little bit about them personally, just a little, even a little bit. Like memoirs are great because it's a whole bunch of information you get to learn, but it's like just hitting an inside glimpse in their life is always really great. Listening to them is always awesome. Most of the time it's read by the celebrity themselves, which also is just nice to have in their voice. And even when it's not, they usually match it with someone who's very close to how that celebrity could voice their own narrative. And it's just, it makes it more real, like to hear their voice coming through in the writing. It just makes it more real. Like, wow, I really am getting an insight into part of this person's life. Yeah, that, I think that's, that's really a good point because it is, it feels so intimate when mm-hmm. they're talking to you. I think, you know, we talk a lot in audiobooks about how, you know, these voices seem so close to us because they're, you know, they're right in our ears. They're, the narrator's mouth is right up next to the microphone. And so it feels like this very close in, you know, connection that we have. And so to have that with a yeah. celebrity, I think, is particularly interesting. And then, you know, you have you have the issue where it's like these these really famous voices, too, which I think is is notable. So yeah. you just reviewed Britney Spears' new memoir, which was not narrated yes. by the author. No. And I almost was super disappointed, but she did do a little intro in the beginning. And then when Michelle Williams started talking, she sounded so much like her, like in a way, like the youthfulness of her voice and the way she just spun the story really worked. So it, to me, it, I almost forgot that it wasn't Brittany speaking anymore. Um, because she really captured it so well. And she even teased Justin Timberlake in part of it. And I'm like, that was hilarious. And it just, you forget that it wasn't Brittany reading it. Um, she did such a good job. That's so interesting, too. I think that that pairing, and it was kind of spoofed. I don't know if you saw it being spoofed on Saturday Night Live this weekend yes. with different people yeah. narrating. Because, you know, you think of Michelle Williams as a, as a serious actor. Yeah. And yeah, I kind of, you know, it is a surprising pairing to have her narrating for Britney Spears. It, it is, but she did such a good job because she didn't sound so serious. She sounded very much like a pop star, which is like a testament to her, her acting as an actor. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think that's really great. And I, I love that how a narrator can, you know, really tap into the emotions and the, the intent of, the author right that way right that's yeah. what makes i think audiobooks so special yeah in general so you um you do a lot of readers advisory and you do listeners advisory along with that in your job do you talk much with patrons about audio pop culture memoir kinds of things do you have any 
tips for people who are trying to get people to listen to the audio versions of memoirs? You know, I think just plugging that in general, it is the celebrity themselves speaking. And a lot of people who don't listen to audiobooks aren't aware of who's narrating. So if you're like, hey, this is Melissa Estridge's new book and she's narrating it, you get to hear her voice. Plus, in her memoir, it was special because you got to hear her music, too, which is not very common. Plugging in the special extras that they get listening to it versus just reading it. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed in a lot of memoirs, there aren't a lot of pictures. Like, you know, if biographies, there's always pictures. In memoirs, there's not a lot of pictures. So you want to, you want something else other than just reading a page. And I think listening to them really gives you that extra boost of like, wow, I'm really getting to know this person. I can see this. I can hear this. It just makes it that much stronger of a story when it's narrated out loud by that person or someone who can capture them. Yeah. 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 That, that extra layer of humanizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you mentioned Melissa Etheridge's book with the the music. I was just talking to somebody else who appreciated hearing Bono sing at the beginning of the yeah. chapters of his memoir too. And I think that Dave Grohl also, there's music involved in that. Ben Folt has music in his, so yeah, there's a lot. I, I think that's an extra interesting thing, which you're never going to get in print. Right. You wouldn't get that. And especially as music listeners, you want to hear that. Like, yeah, that makes it super special when they're that kind of musical artist and you want to hear their art. And yeah. that's why you're basically why you're a fan and why you're reading it. So if you get to hear that, it's such an added bonus. Yeah. Yeah. I um I recently listened to Maria Bamford memoir, which, you know, I feel like comedians are another good subject for, you know, listening because her timing was impeccable, of course, because right. that's like comedy is all about timing. And um, she's such a, you know, she does so many voices for animation, too. She's got mm-hmm. such a range there. So that was super enjoy enjoyable. So we've got musicians, we've got comedians. Are there other professions or other roles that you think really work well with? That's a <laughs> work well uh, <laughs> transferring to, to audio like somebody who it like the type of role or the type of person you, you you would say to yourself i definitely want to listen to that one instead of read that one well i think actors in general just because they actually don't they're not they're acting as themselves but it just makes it so much more intriguing to me like hearing john samos talk about his life and his voice you know when he's <laughs> talking about the Beach Boys and picking up girls. And it's just as, because they have such a Hollywood lifestyle, anyone in Hollywood, I think any celebrity, it's beyond what we get to see every day. Yeah. And so I always want to read those because that's not something I'll come across. Like, yes, I do love personal memoirs too, where you can relate to those people, but having someone in such a big space that we know nothing about, you know, other than what the media tells us. I think it's just fascinating. So any kind of Hollywood person or I or I'm a fan of royalty as well. So those I always do because that's something that I don't see every day ever. Yeah. You know, that's not part of the life that I get to be a part of. So I always want to read those ones just to get it's kind of a little escape like, oh, if I was in Hollywood, maybe this is what it would be like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, those are super fun. Yeah. The royal ones are always because you especially with the royals you don't really hear their voices all that often no no so when you do it's like ooh, 
Yeah. This is super exciting and insider information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, I love it when you do this, Emily. You are often one of my reviewers who asked if you can review books because you hear about these celebrity memoirs even before they come across my desk. And I yes. wonder where it is that you're hearing about these memoirs and these narrations. And if you have any other resources oh. to share to stay for librarians to stay up to date with what their patrons might be wanting. A lot of the time I follow a lot of like entertainment news and people and like all of that on social media on Instagram. So a lot of it comes from that. Or if I follow a specific celebrity on social media. So a lot of social media outlets will put it put out, you know, announcements of when these books are coming. And I also the department that I work at in the library, we put through all the orders. So months in advance, I get to see, oh, we're giving Barbara Streisand's new memoir. I'm gonna make sure that I ask Heather about that because I know it's not out yet, but I know that I can get my hands on it if I want it. <laughs> So just by seeing what everyone's ordering, and then again, like they're so good on the social media sites on getting out when celebrities have something coming, and it's like you always know um, when they have some. Or Rolling Stone magazine is, you know, following them is really good for music memoirs and things like that. So you get a head start knowing what's coming. That's good. Yeah, I, the entertainment media is uh, they're they're way ahead of. The rest mm-hmm. of us, like, think, yeah. all of these things. Well, we knew Britney's book was coming out like way before any, it was even, I don't think it was even written yet. And she, she probably told people, I have a book coming. And we're like, oh, no. And <laughs> it was so exciting. Yeah. You know, that before she even worked on it, we're like, we know what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other resources up that librarians, like, um, for if they want to be better at re- recommending audiobooks or, connecting with other resources and things like that. I always highly suggest to check out artreads.org. It's A-R-R-T-R-E-A-D-S.org. That's the Adult Reading Roundtable in Illinois. They just did a genre study this year on audiobooks specifically. They do a genre every year and they have multiple meetings where you can read the assignments, attend the meetings, talk about the genres, and you learn so much about Reader's Advisory and how to suggest these items. Just in October this year, they had author or celebrity narration audiobooks reviewed. And they do have their notes posted on their website. So you can see those. And then in December is their last meeting for the year. And they're doing short stories and podcasts on December 7th. And it's all Zoom. So people from all over can attend. They do continuing education programs during the year. They have a big one called ArtCon that they do every other year. And they are having that this year at Naperville Public Library where it's just a whole day jam-packed full of reader's advisory. Like, and you get, there's going to be authors there. You get trained from the experts for reader's advisory. You get arcs from the publishers. Like, it's just, it's a whole day full of what librarians love, what reader's advisory librarians love to do. So they're always fantastic and it's a great program. Yeah, it really is. And the Adult Reading Roundtable, I just want to mention for those listeners who are not in the Chicago area, when it began, it was a grassroots organization. It was just some librarians who got together d- that decided that this is a resource that they wanted to have available to each other and growing this service. And so if you don't have a resource like this in your community of librarians, maybe consider having a meetup with your librarian colleagues and friends from your neighboring towns and see if you can 
get some good conversations that are helpful to everybody. Yeah. Adult so, Reading Roundtable will also help you if you need that. Because we've had people reach out like, how do we get this started? What do we need to do? And they're very helpful because they would love to have people all over the country involved and doing more readers advisory training. Yeah, that's excellent. It's yeah, it's such a good resource because we can't all read it all. No, <laughs> we can I sh- wish share the resource. Unless you're Becky, Becky Spratford might be able. To yeah, I think she does. <laughs> yeah, she gets her hands on them at least. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time and for your ideas. Do you have any books that you're you're eyeing in the months coming up that you're like, ooh? I know this one's coming out. I'm going to plan that for my vacation. Listen, I kind of am getting swamped with what's out right now because there's so many good ones. Like there's Henry Winkler's that's out. I'm listening to John Stamos. I listen to Julia Fox's, which is just an unapologetic story. I don't even, I can't even put it into words. She was involved in a lot of stuff that you just didn't know about. Like you didn't know growing up in New York, she grew up in New York and she's just involved in so many different things that are not considered good. And she's made it, you know, she did a great job. I Barbara Streisand's did just come out and I am curious about that, but I think that's a biography. It's not a memoir, (laughs) right? She she writes it and she wrote it and narrated it. She did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I might want to review that one. Yeah. It's a long one. It is a long one. Yeah. (laughs) I think. It's like almost 50 hours long. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not ahead of the curve right now because all these ones that were coming, I was so excited about that. I'm kind of stuck here. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like this time of year is always really big for Still Ready Merit Mm -hmm. memoirs. So I imagine they're high in people's Christmas lists or, you know, holiday wish lists as well. I gifted Brittany's to two of my friends from high school or from college. I'm like, I don't care if you want it. You're getting it. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to let you get back to the Rainer's Advisory work that you do so well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Bye-bye. Professional development is super important for library staff, but finding the time and the funds is real tricky. Booklist webinars are a great way to squeeze some continuing education into your busy schedule. Each free one-hour webinar covers something staff can take right into their work. Like what? How's about picture books, or sci-fi fantasy books, or craft books, or book group picks, or library management, or library reads? So many topics covered each in one convenient hour. Register to watch the webinar live, or to be notified when the video is up in the archives. All free! All just one hour! Perfect for those days when you only have enough time off the service desk to eat a sad sandwich in your office. Find upcoming webinars and archives at booklistonline.com webinars. All right, Sarah Hunter, editor, books for youth and graphic novels. Let's talk about something you're reading and loving. Okay. So I have a child and that drives so much of my reading these days. And she picked out a book from the bookstore on like a total whim like a few weeks ago called Beautiful Oops by Barney Salzberg. That's from Workman and it came out in 2010. So this is like a deep cut. Yeah. But I find this book so delightful. It's about using mistakes in artwork. So it opens with like a torn page that gets turned. You turn the page and then it's a picture of like an alligator with like a toothy mouth. Yeah. And it's all sorts of examples of like ways you can use spills and tears and folds to make something fun. Yeah. 
And it has these really cool like pop-up components and like flaps and things. It is so enjoyable and it's like such a good little interactive picture book. And I and I love the message of using your mistakes in art. I just think that's such a good thing for little kids to think about. And my daughter is like absolutely transfixed by it. She knows all the words already. She can't read, but she can right. memorize. Yes, good. <laughs> and so she'll sit there and she'll like flip through the pages and she'll say all the words and she'll like play with the little interactive bits and it keeps her occupied, which is another thing I love about it. But yeah, that was like a fun little surprise for me. And that was all her choosing a book on her own that looked interesting to her at the bookstore. So beautiful. Her. Oops. That's a fun one. What else you got? I've been reading some good graphic novels lately. I read one for our most recent issue called Tasty, A History of Yummy Experiments Oh, by Victoria Grace Elliott. And that's from RH Graphic and Imprint of Random House. That's coming out this December, so it's not out yet. But I love to think about food like a <laughs> lot. <laughs> you and me both. I think it's it's like I love thinking about art and I love thinking about food. And this book does both things at once because it's a comic. And it's about the history of different kind of food techniques. So like making cheese and making bread and pickles. And then it also gets into the history of like mass produced foods, mm. like instant ramen and jello. And it is just so jam-packed of information. It's amazing how much information is in there. I learned so many things. And it's very playful. Like the information is introduced by a cast of food sprites that are little fairies that like talking about food. And so it's like really cheerful and right, it's very bubbly, but like the history of food is also sort of the history of colonization. Yes. And the book talks a lot about how colonization affects um, food traditions in various cultures. Hmm. One of my favorite examples is this uh, Persian pickle that goes from Persia through a diaspora to like Spain and Portugal, um, and then from Spain and Portugal to South America. So it starts in Persia as a pickle, and it ends in South America and Central America as ceviche. And the name changes just a little bit, and the ingredients change based on where, like, the the ingredients available and its new geography, but the, the technique is the same from place to place, and it's really cool to see that progression and to think about, like, the things that people bring with them to other countries. Yeah. So that one, that one's really, that one really impressed me because it is so informative so light and playful and then still so like serious about its topic yeah so yeah that one's cool that one's coming out this winter and then one i read this summer that i can't stop thinking about because it like speaks to like the the deeper core of me is called <laughs> lisa cheese and ghost guitar oh the ghost guitar did you say ghost guitar yeah attack of the snack is the subtitle it's a comic from Top Shelf that came out in September. <laughs> and it is like Adult Swim cartoons meets Lisa Hanawalt. And it's all about like, so Lisa Cheese is a unicorn with a robot arm. Okay. And her favorite snack stand in the city is threatened by gentrifying hamburgers. Oh, no. <laughs> And it's really, it's really silly um, and really fun, but it is also like deeply, deeply like exennial. Mm -hmm. So like not just any millennial, but like the cusp of Gen X and millennial. Yeah. 
which is why it speaks so deeply to the core of me. There's like jokes about student loan debt and joyless office jobs and like parents not taking artistic aspirations seriously, like an identity crisis and like your favorite food being threatened by like a horrible conglomerate of like fast food manufacturers. Yeah. Again, food. And then like the art style is just so wild, really, really wild and fun. That's another one I really liked. And then one that I'm reading now, and I've not gotten that far. So like, I, I have high hopes, but seriously, I've like not read 50 pages of this book yet, is The Warm Hands of Ghosts by Catherine Arden. That's coming out next February. I love Catherine Arden's books. I read her, I think it's the Girl in the Towers series. Yeah, Bear in the Nightingale is the first book in the series. It's a trilogy based in Russian folklore. And it's just like my perfect kind of fantasy, which is fantasy that's based in history and folklore and it has like a very like earthy quality to it very grounded in Mm -hmm. like human traditions and not you know dragons and stuff yeah and i loved that book and she did a middle grade series a middle grade horror series called small spaces loved that too so i'm very excited about this one um it's set around world war one And it is about a nurse who has returned from the front and is living in Nova Scotia, I think, and is communicating with her missing brother via a seance. At least that's how far I've gotten. Mm -hmm. But it feels very ghosty. And again, like very based in in history. And her writing is just so top notch. So I'm really excited about this one. And it's perfect to read right now in October as we inch closer and closer to Halloween for me to have like a ghost story to read at night. I'm very yeah. happy about it. I love World War One books. I don't, I mean, World War II books are like, what's the most popular in historical fiction for adults anyway. <laughs> but I, I just, I love a World War One story. The other thing that I think is really interesting about World War One and seances in particular is that like World War One and the Spanish or the, the 1918 flu epidemic happened about the same time. Yeah. And it was so many people died. That basically everybody knew somebody who had died unexpectedly. And seances became so popular because so many people had lost so many of their loved ones in that era. And so there's like a real sense of like palpable grief and like memory and memorial around stories set in that area at that era that I find really interesting. And like, you know, I don't know. It's just very atmospheric. And, yeah. And it's the kind of atmosphere that like really speaks to me. So yeah, I'm into that right now too. Awesome. Well, you have a good, you've had some good reading experiences lately. I love it. Sort of all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Well, we read, we read a high volume. So if you can get mostly good, then you're in, you're in good shape. For real. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. And that's it for this episode of Shelf Care, the podcast. Thank you to Nanette Donahue for talking to me about craft books, to Heather Booth and Emily Borsa for their delightful conversation about celebrity memoirs on audio, and to Sarah Hunter for sharing what she's reading and loving. If you like what you've heard, won't you consider rating and reviewing us on your nearest podcast app? That will help others find our bookish goodness. Thank you kindly, and happy reading!